Welcome back, everyone, to another CHP episode, number 197 this time, part one in a multi-part series in which I'm going to attempt to offer you another patented CHP overview of this long and, well, often adversarial relationship. But as history goes, it's a good one. In this effort of mine to encapsulate the milestones and then some of the history of China-Vietnam relations, I'd also like to seize on the opportunity, while I have it, to also give you a brief and hopefully not too complicated general survey of Vietnamese history. It took me something like 27 episodes to do that cursory overview of Chinese imperial history, Xia to Qing, and I'm sure it would take about the same amount of time to cover Vietnam stem to stern. So I hope any Vietnamese listening or anyone already expert on this subject, please cut me a little slack. I'm guessing most of you haven't delved too deep into Vietnam history. After digesting this little degustation I'm going to put together for you, if you'd like, you can do your own personal deep dive. My fellow Americanskis, well, sometimes our understanding of Vietnamese history tends to start only at the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. So at least let me disabuse anyone here of that notion. It actually goes back quite a lot further than that. And being the China History Podcast, a certified paid-in-full member of the Recorded History Podcast Network, recordedhistory.net, I wanted to present Vietnamese history through the lens of China relations. As tempting as it is, I don't want to turn this into a series where I try and scrunch 3,000 years of Vietnam history into a four- or five-part series. Hope you don't mind that I've left out great swaths of Vietnam history. There certainly are a lot of books written on the subject. My two main sources, and I heartily recommend them both, as superb all-in-one general histories of Vietnam, in English anyway, Cornell University Professor of Vietnamese Studies, Keith Taylor, A History of the Vietnamese, Cambridge University Press. That one came out in 2013. The other one I fancied was Yale Professor Ben Kernan's Vietnam, A History from Earliest Times to the Present, Oxford University Press. That one uh, came out in 2017. Besides those two, there's plenty of other good sources. Look on a map. The border of northern Vietnam. Part of it borders Yunnan, and the other longer part of the border divides Vietnam from Guangxi. But it wasn't always like that. Before all these borders got put in place, it was an amorphous confederation of all kinds of tribes populating the hills, mountains, and river valleys with an indigenous culture completely unrecognizable to the modern Vietnamese of today. These were not the Gin people, the Ngoi Viet, the, the race who make up something like 85 to 90 percent of the population of that country today. There are many things the two nations have in common. One of them is that in Vietnam, just as in China, their civilization began along a very great river. Chinese Civ began up and down the Yellow River Valley in North China. In Vietnam, it all started in the Red River Valley in the north. The Honghe and what Xi'an and Luoyang were to ancient China, that's what Hanoi was to Vietnam. As we wend our way through the history, you'll see in almost all cases, 
all the action takes place in and around Hanoi. Let me preface everything I'm about to say by mentioning Vietnam's Sima Qian, their Herodotus, their great historian who first chronicled the history of the Viet people, Lei Van Hu. He didn't come along till the Vietnamese Chun Dynasty, 13th, 14th century. That means that everything there is about Vietnamese history from mythical times until the Mongol invasions came from Chinese sources. Now, that isn't a bad thing. Chinese historians were meticulous to a T. But history was something that should have always served the dynasty in which the historian was serving, not the one he was writing about. So anything written about Vietnam history, well, how accurate the info is, the dates, names, and actions, I guess you can trust it as much as you could trust any of the two dozen histories of China, starting with the Shirji, the records of the Grand Historian, all the way up to the Mingshir of the 18th century. Who knows how true the narrations are to the actual events. A lot of times, that's all we got. It's often the case that for much of the history, there's a Chinese version and the Vietnamese version. I'm going to try my best to get as close as possible with all the Vietnamese names and places, despite being married to a Vietnamese for 30 years. I never picked up that language. It's not like Chinese at all. A lot of words were borrowed and became part of the Vietnamese language, but it isn't Chinese, and I was never able to pick it up. So to all Vietnamese around the world who are tuning in to this episode and rolling your eyes at my pronunciation, Doi Xin Loi. The source of the Red River is in the mountains of Yunnan, near Dali, and it flows southeast, emptying out in the Gulf of Tonkin. If you look on a map, there are countless tributaries that make this most ancient part of Vietnam a watered world that formed a massive delta. This was ground zero. How important was the Red River to the early development of Vietnam? It's probably about the same as the Yellow River's importance to China. There was another striking similarity between the two rivers. Just as the Yellow River would carry this yellow, brownish-colored silt from the hills and plateaus of Qinghai, Gansu, Shanxi. So did the Red River, and in an endless flow dictated by nature, the reddish-brown silt would ride with the river current southeastwards, and all that silt would inevitably back up and form new lands in the Delta region, ever expanding outward. And this was most fertile land, and farmers would find it like a miner who knows where to dig for ore. And from that, central locus evolved a whole thriving society. The delta today is about 15,000 square kilometers and 150 kilometers in width. The area used to be chock-filled with saltwater crocodiles, and these were probably the Hailong, or sea dragons, written about in the Bronze Age. The Red River Delta, this cradle of Vietnamese civilization is home to about 19 million people today. Water, nước, was one of Vietnam's defining characteristics. It gave life and took it away. In Vietnamese, nước not only means water, it's another word for country. Vietnam's history is intertwined with 3,000 years of profound weather patterns that yielded either too much rain or drought conditions. And Vietnam's history throughout the centuries was one of reacting to all these changing weather patterns. 
Very early on, the people of this Red River Delta region began calling themselves the Viet, V-I-E-T, or as the Chinese called them, the Yuet. In fact, all these people of South China were grouped together in this catch-all Yuet term. Collectively, they were called the Bai Yuet, or Hundred Yuet. They had different languages and customs, and none of which fit the mold of the northern Chinese Huaxia culture that had hatched during the Zhou Dynasty. The Baiyue stretched from the Yangtze River region all the way south to below the Red River in Vietnam. Bai means a hundred. Yue, the Yue people, of which there were many, all with different customs, languages, leaders, and stages of development in their sophistication. In Vietnamese, they were called the Bac Viet. The Shang oracle bones refer to these Yue people, the ones in the east of China, in Zhejiang. We mentioned them in the past. Perhaps you may recall the Yue King Gojian and his epic battles with King Fu Chai of Wu. These Zhejiang-based Yue, after their lands were conquered by the Chu in 333 BCE, they migrated to the south of China, where there was a higher concentration of these Yue people. Ancient texts describe these Bai Yue as a very warlike and violent group of people who knew how to handle ships on the water. We're still trying to figure out who exactly these Yue were. They weren't all conveniently one people with one language and shared culture. The Cantonese people, too, came from these Yue, but they use a different Chinese character for Yue than the one used for the Yue people down in Vietnam. One of these tribes of Yue, or Viet, were the Lak. And while the rest of the Bai Yue get themselves conquered by the Chinese and ultimately mix themselves into the Chinese cultural pot, the Lak Viet people, emerging all around the Red River Delta, are going to stubbornly cling to what they had as far as their own distinct Southeast Asian, Austro-Asiatic culture and Mon-Khmer language went. And though a thousand years of Chinese influence will lead to many changes, there will be a long war of attrition by these Nui Viet to accentuate the Viet aspect of their culture and de-emphasize what China brought to those lands. They had their own identity and beliefs, and despite the magnificence and sophistication of Chinese culture, they were never interested to get mixed up in the Han Chinese hot pot like the other Bai Yue south of the Yangtze. Not in language, food, clothing, and other customs and beliefs. That was one constant theme in Sino-Viet relations going back to the beginning. Two thousand years ago, a civilization like China couldn't help but think they were exceptional. Who wouldn't want to be like them? Well, down in the Red River Valley, they thought the same thing about themselves. And the best-known legends of the nation taught in the public schools in Vietnam usually have something to do with some great king or hero who at some dark hour rescued the Viet nation from the clutches of Chinese domination. Most people familiar with Vietnam will often divide the country up into three main regions, all with their own styles of cuisine, music, accents, and whatnot. Well, from the earliest of early days, Vietnam was also divided up into North, Central, and South. North bordered China and was, on and off, overwhelmed by Chinese culture and influence. The central parts 
became home to a variety of non-Viet Southeast Asian people. And in the south of Vietnam, well, that was more heavily Indian-influenced, mainly due to trade with India and later with the introduction of Hinduism. So you had three completely separate and distinct things going on at the same time in what is today one single country. And what you ultimately got in the end, what there is today, is a blend of the best that all these civilizations, languages, and cultures had to offer, plus everything else acquired from China along the way. There was a whole other world going on in southern Vietnam. I'm going to leave that to the History of Southeast Asia podcast host to teach you about that. That area, again, a whole other world from what was happening in the northern third of Vietnam, that would become a trading powerhouse. From the earliest times, these seafaring people down in the south carried out commerce with kingdoms and empires that would one day become the nations of Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, Myanmar, Malaysia, Brunei, India, and Sri Lanka. And look on a map, you could see why. But the core region where Vietnamese civilization began and where our story mostly takes place was still the Red River Delta. And being so close to China as it was, it was only natural that the impact of Chinese culture would be the strongest on that region. Just as Jews and Muslims claim Abraham or Ibrahim as a common ancestor, so do China and Vietnam, with he who discovered tea, Chinese medicine, the calendar, and a hundred other things. Shen Nong, the divine farmer. In Vietnamese, he's called Tan Nam. According to Sima Qian, Shen Nong lived during the 3rd millennium BCE. 2787 BCE, I believe, is the date ascribed to his birth. The Hong Bang Dynasty in Vietnam, 2879 to 258 BCE, and was a Bronze Age dynasty contemporary with the Xia, Shang, and Zhou. Both in China and Vietnam, they had their own totally separate Bronze Age development. Their first king, Gin Yung Vung, according to Vietnamese lore, was descended from Shan Nong. Vung, aside from being the same as the Chinese character for the surname Wang, also means king. He was considered Vietnam's first king. He was succeeded by his son, who was known as Lạc Long Gun, the Dragon Lord of Lạc. Lạc Long Gun is another legendary ancestor of the Lạc Viet, the ancestors of the Gin or Ngoi Viet, the, the, the Vietnamese. Pardon my pronunciation again. Uh, there's an ancient legend that says Lạc Long Gun, this descendant of Shan Nong, Tan Nam, and his wife, Ao Ge, between the two of them spawned a hundred sons, half of which populated the lands of the Red River Delta region, and the other half went to the hills and mountains that surrounded that watered plain. These Lak people, as they were called, lived in a land called Aulak, or Olo. Whenever possible, I'll give you the Chinese as well as the Vietnamese, and as I always do, I'll post all these terms used in this episode on my website at teacup.media. I'll have everything sorted out in pinyin, Vietnamese, Chinese, and English. All for your inconvenience and at no additional charge. Not yet, anyway. The founder of Aulak was Tuk Phan. He was the conqueror of the Hongban dynasty and ruled 
Aulak from 257 to 207 BCE. This Aulak kingdom down along the Red River was contemporary with the Warring States period to the end of the Qin. Confucius had already come and gone by this time. Tukfan is more popularly known as Anyongvung, King Anyong, Anyangwang in Chinese. And it was on the Red River in the vicinity of modern-day Hanoi that King Anyong built his capital. And that became the epicenter where the cultural foundation of Vietnam first took root. And it pretty much stays that way, only with a small gap here and there. Like more than a few of Vietnam's royals over the centuries, An Yung originally came from China. He was a former Shu prince whose clan fled southeast to Guangxi and ultimately to the Red River Plain. Why were they fleeing? Well, of course, to escape the aftermath of the conquest of Shu in 316 BCE, all covered in previous episodes. The Qin, before unification, rolled into Shu and took that part of China, today's Sichuan province, and pasted it on to their expanding Qin state. And lest we forget, both the state of Shu, centered around Chengdu, and next door to the east in Ba State, modern-day Chongqing, this was the first place in the world where tea was cultivated. And we all owe them a debt of thanks for that. You can point to the year Qin Shi Huang achieved unification in China, 221 BCE, as the genesis of Zhongyue Guanxi, China-Viet relations. Once he finished off the last of the six remaining warring states and set himself up as China's first Huangdi, or emperor, Qin Shi Huang immediately went on a land acquisition frenzy. And one of the places he sent his army was to the two Guangs, Guangxi and Guangdong. The Qin army went in and took that place over and followed that up with a wave of Han Chinese settlers who took the emperor up on his offer to go populate these new lands. A lot of empty spaces got filled up. And wherever Chinese went, so went Chinese culture and traditions. Between 221 and 214 BCE, there were five military campaigns that went in and conquered these Yue. All their lands were annexed and became part of China. Still are today. Zhejiang, Fujian, Guangdong, Guangxi, and of course, in northern Vietnam. Yeah, the hundred Yue didn't know anything about any borders yet. Once the Yue were under control, a new Jin, or commandery, was established. This was like a this was like a fort or military base and prefecture all rolled into one. It was headquartered in Guangzhou, and that's where that city got its start. And from that point on, 3rd century BCE, Guangzhou began its rise as China's premier foreign trading port. And the man who was in charge down there was named Zhao Tuo. He's shown up in more than a few CHP episodes. In Vietnamese, Zhao Tuo was known as Zhu Da. He was sent down to the commandery in 208 BCE, right when the Titanic was sinking and the Qin was on its way out, and so soon after its founding, too. With essentially no one in charge of the government, Zhao Tuo became a renegade general, and as the Qin ship of state slipped beneath the surface and passed into history, he took matters into his own hands, and all the lands contained in the southernmost commandery of China were turned into a kingdom, and Zhao Tuo made himself the king. And he called this kingdom Nanyue, Nam Viet, 
drawing his inspiration from the Yue of the Zhejiang area and their great ruler Gou Jian. And as soon as he established this kingdom, Zhao Tuo's forces went in and put a dramatic end to King Anyong and the Aula kingdom. His troops captured the Tangoluo, the main fortress at the capital, today located in the Dong'an district of Hanoi. An Yongfeng was forced to flee the scene. Part of this Nanyue kingdom included the whole Red River Delta region. There was no clear marking where China ended and Vietnam began. So all of northern Vietnam was lumped together with portions of Guangdong and Guangxi in this Nanyue or Nam Viet kingdom. The capital was in Panyu, conveniently located in the watered world of the Pearl River Delta, southeast of Guangzhou. Zhao Tuo is called the founder of the Jiu dynasty in Vietnam, in a way that Kublai Khan was the founder of the Yuan. He was a Mongol who was an emperor of China. Zhao Tuo was a Han Chinese who was the founding emperor of the Jiu dynasty. This is a Vietnamese dynasty. It wasn't part of the Chinese imperial chronology. Zhao Tuo is mainly credited with transforming that region and being the first to bring down all that good and great Zhou dynasty culture. The stem cells, so to speak, for all the richness and delights of Chinese culture to follow. The Qin dynasty hadn't lasted long, but there was still plenty that came out of it. And Zhao Tuo was the vessel who brought it to Vietnam. Depending on your outlook, Zhu Da was either an invader or a civilizing force. As Zhao Tuo was building his kingdom, mind you, according to the record, he lived to 103 years of age. And as you know, uh, China finally gets it together after the fall of the Qin, and after the Chu Han contention goes down in 202 BCE, and Liu Bang comes out on top after the Battle of Gaixia. After everything settles down, the Han Emperor Gaozu decided he wanted his lost commandery back. Zhao Tuo defied the Han Emperor and wasn't terribly forthcoming about where his loyalties lie. To deal with this impasse, Han Gaozu sent his most trusted official, Lu Jia, down to the Nanyue capital in Panyu to work on Zhao Tuo and talk some sense into him. 196 BCE, Lu Jia met face-to-face with Zhao Tuo, and they worked out a kind of deal whereby Zhao Tuo would be able to remain a king, but he had to acknowledge Han Gaozu as the emperor. In other words, not as equals. That kept things bearable for the meanwhile until 183 BCE when, taking advantage of the unrest following the death of Han Gaozu, Zhao Tuo declared himself the Nan Wu Di. Now this translates to the Nanyue warrior emperor, like Han Wu Di later on. There was a world of difference between being a king and being an emperor. An emperor could talk directly with heaven. A king? Well, heaven didn't bother with him. Once again, Zhao Tuo's presumption of equality antagonized the Han court, and Lu Jia again was sent down to go bring Zhao Tuo to his senses. And by the way, stop attacking the southern frontier of China. But in that act of declaring himself the Nan Wu Di, Zhao Tuo, Jiu Da, got written into the history books as the first emperor of Vietnam. 179 BCE, Zhao Tuo, to keep the peace and hedge his bets, strategically dropped the Nan Wu Di title. And during the splendid reign of Han Emperor Wen and Jing, Things were peaceful, 
for a while at least, between the Nanyue Kingdom and China. But Zhao Tuo died in 137 BCE and was succeeded by his grandson, Zhao Mo, or Jiu Mat. Let's just say straight out, he was no Zhao Tuo, and it was under his watch that Nanyue returned to the China fold. It all started when the Minyue, or the Yue of Fujian province, they had invaded Nanyue and became a clear and present danger to Emperor Zhao Mo. So in a time-honored tradition from here on out, he ran to the Chinese emperor for military assistance against this antagonist who was trying to take him down. And as part of the deal, in exchange for Han China's help in intervening, Zhao Mo declared his kingdom a vassal of Han China. And to show his sincerity, he sent his own son to the Han court as a hostage. True to their word, the Han army went in and got the Minyue to back off from invading Nanyue. The Minyue will remain in the picture until the end of the Han, beginning of the Three Kingdoms period, before they join all the other Yue tribes who fell to Chinese invasion and were assimilated into the ever-growing nation. And when Zhao Mo died in 122 BCE, this son, the one he sent to Chang'an, the, the Han capital, as a hostage, he became the third emperor of Nanyue after the death of Zhao Mo. And this new emperor, Ying Qi, was allowed to return to Nanyue. Uh, by the way, 21 centuries after the second Nanyue emperor Zhao Mo died, construction workers in Guangzhou stumbled on his tomb in 1983 in the Yue district of Guangzhou. And today you could see artifacts at the Xi Han Nanyue Wang Guan, the Western Han Nanyue King Museum. You can go check out Zhao Mo's jade burial suit. Pretty cool if you never saw one of those before. As I said, this third Nanyue king, Zhao Yingqi, Jiu Andei, 122 to 115 BCE, he was the eldest son of Zhao Mo. He's mainly remembered as a ruthless, bloodthirsty tyrant who murdered his own citizens. Not the first and not the last one in history to do that. The Nanyue kingdom turned a corner here, and by this third emperor's time, it was decidedly in a downward trajectory. By the time of the fourth emperor... It was one of those Empress Dowager, Child Emperor kind of things, which rarely, if ever, ends well. In the end, it came down to a Nanyue Prime Minister, Lu Jia, not Lu Jia, the great Confucian scholar official who dealt with Zhao Tuo on behalf of Han Gaozu. This Lu Jia led a conspiracy that led to the murder of both the young Nanyue Emperor and the Empress Dowager. Lu Jia, thereupon put the emperor's brother on the throne, and, well, feeling confident, he declared war on the Han Empire. The Nanyue army, after managing to rebuff Chinese attempts at working things out diplomatically, and after defeating Han forces in a limited battle, earned the wrath of the Han Emperor Wu Di. No one to mess around with. He sent six armies marching south, over 100,000 troops, down to Nanyue. After taking the capital at Panyu, the forces of Nanyue were defeated in the milestone year of 111 BCE. Lu Jia and the fifth Nanyue king, Jian De, were captured and ended up with the head displayed on the end of the pike treatment. Once Nanyue was taken, Han Chinese again flooded the zone to keep the sanification process going down there. Nanyue, Nam Viet, including all these former Aulak lands in Vietnam, 
were annexed to Han China. And that marked the end of Nanyue and the start of the first period of domination by China in Vietnam, which lasted from 111 BCE to 39 CE. For almost a thousand years thereafter, there was an on-again, off-again period of Chinese domination of northern Vietnam. It lasted from 111 BCE all the way up to 938, after the bloody and messy ending of the Tang Dynasty in China. Vietnamese call this period the Baktok, or Beishu, in Mandarin. This whole Nanyue kingdom that included parts of Guangdong, Guangxi, and northern Vietnam is called the Lingnan area. Lingnan refers to that part of China, south of the Nanling Mountains that separates the Pearl River Basin from the Yangtze Valley. Hainan is also considered to be under the umbrella of Lingnan culture, as are the Diochus, Hakkas, and Zhuangs. In popular usage, Lingnan culture and Cantonese Hong Kong Macau culture are used interchangeably, but Lingnan is so much more. The culture of this Lingnan area provided a splendid addition to the northern Huaxia culture that had already been developing for over a thousand years. The newly conquered Nanyue Kingdom was renamed Jiaozhi, or in Vietnamese, Yao Ji. You better get used to that name. Jiao, the Chinese won't be calling the place Yunnan or Vietnam for a long, long time. For all of ancient and early history, it'll always be Jiao. The Han had succeeded down south where the Qin had come up short. The Han set up nine Jun, or commanderies, to administer Jiaozhi, three of which were based in Vietnam. Jiaozhi, Jiaozhen, and Zhunan. A lot of the action over the next several centuries will more often than not be centered around these three places, all in the north. Although the Jiaozhi region contained the whole of the Red River Delta, including Hanoi, it didn't mean all the locals were happy to be part of China. Although Chinese culture and influence was flooding into Jiaozhi, there always remained a popular resistance to Sinification. In fact, this resistance never let up. There was always, at any given time, some tribe or clan or ethnic group that resisted the Chinese and viewed these outsiders as invaders. One notable period of unrest was called the Lok Rebellion of 39 to 43 CE. This brief moment in time is one of the proudest moments in Vietnam history. In fact, very early on, even before I got married, I remember my father-in-law over bottles of 33 beer telling me about this story. It was my first taste of Vietnam history. This concerns the Lak Rebellion and the three-year rule of the Jung sisters, the Hai Ba Jung, Jung Jack, and Jung Yi. In Chinese, they were known as Zheng Ce and Zheng Er. They were the daughters of a Lak lord. Both sisters were married to the same husband, who was the son of another Lak lord in Jiaozhi. All the details we have of this story come solely from Chinese sources, the later book of Han, the Ho Han Shu. These were two of the greatest national heroes or heroines from Vietnam history. Why? It's because they stood up to China, and for a brief moment expelled them from Jiaozhi. Why did they rise up? Well, why does any group of people rise up? Because of oppression by their overlords. Elder sister Jung Jack 
was the true leader of this rebellion. And the two sisters raised an army, starting off in their home turf of Meilin, just northeast of Hanoi, on the other side of the Red River. And their top military command were all women. And the rebellion began in the spring of 39, the year of the dog. This was the reign of Caligula over in Rome. The rebellion was very focused in one area and got weaker the further you wandered from Hanoi. They inspired more than they led a revolt against the Han administration. Other clans joined up, but not in support of the Jung sisters. They were in it for their own reasons. The whole idea of a Vietnam nation hadn't happened quite yet. No one had unified these Viet people into one yet. So the summer of 41, Eastern Han struck back by land and sea to retake Jiaocher. They were led by General Ma Yuan, one of Han Guangwu's most trusted generals and officials. By the spring of 42, the Imperial Army reached the area around Hanoi, and from that base in Baknin province, they went in for the kill. There are varying stories regarding the demise of the Hai Ba Zheng, but in early 43, both sisters were captured, killed, and decapitated, along with a thousand other rebels, and the two sisters' heads were sent to the capital in Luoyang in September 43. The Zhong sisters were dealt with, but the Lak revolt in Jiaozhou continued on still. It took a while, but Jiaozhou was finally pacified by the Eastern Han military. Just as it wore down French and American troops later on, the climate in that part of Vietnam was brutal for the invading Chinese. Ma Yuan had written, quote, When I was between Lang Bak and Tai Vu, and the rebels were not yet subdued, rain fell, vapors rose, there were pestilential emanations, and the heat was unbearable, end quote. Americans would be saying the same thing 1,922 years later. Yeah, that was yet another common theme that ran throughout Vietnamese history. Anyone not used to the heat and humidity in those latitudes found it unbearable. Ma Yuan's forces were not the first to wilt in that climate. For his victory, Ma Yuan was amply rewarded with titles and riches, but half his expeditionary force perished from fighting or disease. In Vietnam, where he's known as Ma Vin, he's listed in the rogues gallery section. Not a hero in Vietnam, that's for sure. So there was a very brief three-year period of independence when Vietnam was able to shake off their Chinese rulers after 247 years, but it wasn't long-lasting. Part of the fallout from Ma Yuan's victory over the Zhong sisters was that most of the Lac Viet aristocracy were put to the sword and slowly replaced with a more Chinese-influenced culture and administration style. This is where the process went into overdrive. Those Lac Viet who remained behind had to watch as their culture which had been slowly disappearing since the fall of Olak in 179 BCE, become even more and more sinicized. By no means was this a one-way transformation. Those Han Chinese who came from the north and who ended up in Vietnam, not only did they contribute to the sinicization, but they themselves were, over time, transformed in the other direction by the Viet culture that had evolved in the Red River Valley. So the influence actually went in two directions, producing something unique. In no way do I want to say Chinese culture replaced Vietnamese culture. This never happened. I'm 
pretty sure it never will. In the fall of 44, Magyran declared it was mission accomplished and returned north. One of the cultural symbols of authority of the Olak had always been these bronze drums, these bronze ceremonial drums, large and small, that were seized by the Han imperial forces in what was surely a horrible blow to the people there. These symbolic bronze drums were melted down and recast into other images that were presented to the Han Emperor Guangwu. Bronze columns were cast and erected in the border areas of Jiaochur in the north and south that marked the territory. Most trade prior to this period in the eastern Han came overland via the Silk Roads, but now more and more maritime trade was happening and no longer was the Nanyue capital of Panyu where they went. More and more trade shifted south to the Red River Delta. And this early Anno Domini era witnessed a great flourishing of South Sea trade and the emergence of the Maritime Silk Road. By 136-137, the unrest in the Viet areas was constant. Chinese would try to pacify through appeasement and other means, but as soon as they went away, the locals would rise up again. There were constant insurrections. These tribes down in this region had grown rich and powerful from the South Sea trade and had become very independent-minded and not so willing to have the Chinese telling them what to do. And the further south you went, the worse it was for China. So Chinese soldiers rarely ventured any further south than Zhenan. That was the southernmost commandery located in central Vietnam, not too far from Wei. Incidentally, in the book of later Han, the Ho Han Shu, it stated that in 166, a trade mission from Da Qin came to Jiaozhou on their way to China. Da Qin was the name for Rome, and this was during the time of Marcus Aurelius. These traders were after silk and other things that China was famous for, and this was the first known encounter between ancient Rome and Vietnam. If no one objects too vehemently, I'm going to close the book here until we can convene again next time. Starting in 177, Shi Xie enters the picture. In Vietnam, he's known as Si Nhe or Si Vung. Other than having a minor tongue twister of a name, he takes center stage for the next big thing to happen in the history of China-Vietnam relations. So I will just have to leave you all hanging until we meet again. You thinking of maybe going to Taiwan for your next holiday? That's the new cool destination to go in Asia. I haven't been there myself since Jiang Jingguo was president. But when I do make my way over there, I'm calling my Taiwan tour. No matter you're a day tripper or looking for a 10-day extravaganza, mytaiwantour.com. Try them out. Ask for Josh. He'll get you all taken care of. Okay, sure, sure, next time. I bet you can't say that 10 times real fast. Laszlo Montgomery signing off from a wet and wild Los Angeles, California. Spring is right around the corner. And from the looks of it, prosperity as well. Take care, everyone, and please don't bail on me just yet. We're only in the second century. Got a long way to go before that 1979 border war. Hang tight, and if I'm lucky, I'll see you next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.